Take your Bible, turn to the book of Romans, chapter 1. This past week, last week actually, marked my uh, 22nd um, year, uh, finishing my 22nd year of being a pastor. Um, And so I was reflecting on that, thinking about that, and one of the things that I realized is that what we're about to do today, I have never done in 22 years. In 22 years of ministry, there's been a lot that I have done. Lots of different situations and different places and places I've been and places I've been able to serve, a couple of churches, lots of people interacted with, lots of things happening in our country and around the world. But in those 22 years, I have never preached a series on the book of Romans. And I got to asking myself why, and then I realized it's because it's hard to understand. It's hard. And I got worried about that. As a pastor, I'm supposed to know about this, but this is what I read in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16. By the way, who wrote 2 Peter? P- Peter. Yeah, we're a little slow on that. All right. it's, it's, that was not a, wasn't a trick question. So 2 Peter was written by Peter. All right. Who wrote Romans, just so we know? Paul. All right, and so 2 Peter... He is writing and he says, Paul's letters contain things that are hard to understand, which, is, which ignorant and unstable people distort and they do other scriptures. He says, if, here's what I thought, if Peter has a hard time understanding it, it's okay if I do, right? Amen? So what we're going to do over the next little bit is we're going to go through the book of Romans. Now let me just tell you, some pastors have taken four years to go through Romans. We will not. And all God's people said, amen, all right? So we're not going to take four years. In fact, it's going to take us probably about half a year, but we're going to break it up into three different sections. So we're going to spend the next seven weeks, it'll take us almost to November, walking through the first part of Romans. And you say, well, why do you think it's important to go through the book of Romans? Because many people consider it to be the greatest theological book ever written. And I don't mean book of the Bible, I mean... Any. And it has been life changing for people who study it. In 386 AD, anybody around back then? There was a guy named Aurelius Augustine who was teaching rhetoric at a school in northern Italy. By his own testimony, he was involved in things he should not have been involved in. Sexual immorality, he considered himself, later he would say, a drunkard. And his mother, Monica, though, was a believer and was praying for his salvation. One day he was despondent. Life just wasn't doing what he needed it to do. He felt like he was missing something. And he was sitting outside and there were some children over near him playing a game. And part of the game was that they would chant. I don't know what the game was. This seems like a weird game for kids. But they would say, pick up and read. Pick up and read. And that just kept echoing in his mind. He was staying at that time with a friend who was curious about Christianity and he walked into the guy's room and he saw laying out there the Bible open to the book of Romans. And he heard in his mind again, take up and read. And he read Romans 13, 13 through 14, which is what was open. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in drunkenness, not in sexual immorality, not in debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ 
and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. In that moment, he said, he began to pursue Christ, turned his life around, and Augustine, Augustine, became one of the earliest theologians of the church. 1,200 years later, there was a Catholic monk and professor of theology who was following the teachings of Augustine, teaching at a university called Wittenberg in Germany. He was reading the book of Romans, and he began to understand that he didn't have to buy his way into heaven through sacraments or indulgence. He came to the firm conviction that salvation is by grace through faith, by reading the book of Romans, and he decided that there were 95 things that needed to be said to the Catholic Church. Martin Luther wrote them out, nailed them to the door of Wittenberg, and Christianity has been changed ever since. People have commented on the book of Romans and said that it is the thing that is the entrance to the most hidden treasures of Scripture. And Martin Luther, who we just talked about, said that it is the most important piece of the New Testament. It is impossible to read, study, ponder, or meditate on it too much. He calls the central premise of Romans justification by faith, the doctrine on which the church rises or falls. Here's another thing about Romans that's interesting is if you trace back the great awakenings and spiritual movements of the church, almost all of them began in part at least with a study of the book of Romans. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to begin our process through it. And my prayer is, our goal is for our to have our lives exposed by Christ through the reading of this word, the letter Paul wrote, in order that we might grow in our understanding of him and become more like Christ. And as that happens, that there would be an awakening within us individually and an awakening within our church that leads to a stronger desire to follow him and a greater desire to tell other people about him. Romans chapter 1. It's a unique book in Paul's writing. It's the longest. That's why it's the first of the writings of Paul that's listed in your Bible. Although it is most important probably in the understanding of theology, it is the longest of the letters. It is the longest greeting. It is the longest ending. It's interesting because it is written to a church that Paul or one of his contemporaries, one of his co-workers did not start. It's the only letter we have in scripture written by Paul that was to a church that was not started by him or someone that he worked with and he it is written to a church he had never visited before this moment so he's going all in what he's heard and he says to them starting in chapter 1 verse 1 Paul a servant of Christ Jesus called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the holy scriptures Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was a descendant of David, according to the flesh, and was appointed to be the powerful son of God, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection of the dead. Through him, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith that for the sake of his name among all the Gentiles, including you who are also called by Jesus Christ, to all who are in Rome, loved by God, called as saints, grace to you. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, 
I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because the news of your faith is being reported in all the world. God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit and telling the good news about his son that I constantly mention you. Always asking my prayers that if it is somehow in God's will, I may now at least succeed in coming to you. For I want very much to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Now, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I often planned to come to you but was prevented until now in order that I might have a faithful ministry among you just as I've had among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm obligated to both Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you and those who are in Rome, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as written, the righteous will live by faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we open your word, that you would speak to us. That we know that the power that your word, given through Paul to the church in Rome, that that power that was there that has transformed people and churches And generations is the same power that is available today. And so, Lord, we pray that even today we would be encountering your truth in a way that changes our lives. Three things that this passage really focuses on today as we get just into the introduction, just the beginning of it. Three things that it's going to tell us about today, and that is the man, the message, and the mission. It's going to talk for us just for a moment as Paul's introducing himself, setting the stage. This is his greeting. This is his introduction. This is the beginning part of it as he's telling them who he is and what he's about and what's going on. He's going to remind them that in his life there are important things about who he is, about the message he has been given, and about the mission that he is on. It starts there in chapter 1, verse 1, when it tells us about him. Paul, it says, a servant of Christ Jesus called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The first thing that we find in this passage of Scripture is that Paul was saved by Jesus. Now, now, let's remember for a minute who he is. Paul is a man that was adamantly against the church. In fact, he would have been brought up in a tradition of being a Pharisee. He tells us in one of his letters that he was the... Jew of the Jews. He was the most Jewish you could be, the most devoted to the Word of God, the Pentateuch, the understanding of the Old Testament that you could be. He lived his life blameless according to the law. He did absolutely everything right that he was supposed to do as he was brought up in this religion of Judaism. He had followed the law exactly. There was the Hebrew of Hebrews, the the one who was outstanding of all, the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was the pinnacle of what it meant to be the one that could earn your salvation. And yet, on the road to Damascus, he is confronted by the Lord Jesus Christ, and he realizes in a moment that all of that was, as he would say later, trash. And he becomes a believer in Jesus Christ in a moment. It is quite remarkable, and we we just know this, and so it's not remarkable in our minds, but if you would have told someone 
a week before Paul became Paul, when he was Saul, if you would have told him a week before that, that he would become the greatest advocate of planting churches across the world for Christianity, they would have called you absolutely nuts. In a moment, his life forever changed. And he was saved by Christ. And we'll talk about this more in a little bit, but he would say in the midst of that that he was saved not because of all that he had done, but in spite of all that he had done. He was saved by Jesus. Secondly, he was devoted to Jesus. The word there, a servant of Christ Jesus, the literal word there is a slave or one who is chained to or bonded to, one that does all that can be asked of by the master. In fact, there are many that think this word is tied to an Old Testament phrase that meant a servant of Yahweh, and that servant was given to prominent people like Abraham and Moses and David. They were servants of Yahweh. And Paul says that now I am devoted to him completely, passionately, without any doubt that my service goes to him. I am a humble servant of the king. That my life revolves around doing whatever Christ asks of me. He says that he was saved by Jesus. He was devoted to Jesus, but then also that he was called by Jesus. The word apostle there, you could almost put it with a capital A because it meant one of the sent ones. Now, that word was used in their language a lot, like one who was sent out, someone who was, we would say, missionary or um, ambassador or advocate for Christ, that he was particularly called, asked, called out of by Christ to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. He is saying that he has been selected by God to take the gospel to the people who are in need. Formerly, he would say, I tried to distinguish myself through talents and goodness. Now I want to be known only for the gospel. I've seen what I can do, and it is failing. So it is better to put Jesus in charge and to be set apart for him. Here's what I find interesting about this first thing. He's introducing himself. These are the first words that he's saying to these people. They have heard about Paul. They no doubt know about Paul. But Paul, writing a personal letter to this church, the first thing that he wants them to know is that his life is all about Jesus. He is a servant of Jesus. He is saved by Jesus. He is called out and set apart by Jesus. Paul wants them to know from the beginning, this isn't anything about me. Jim Elliott, a missionary who gave his life, once said, we as Christians are just a bunch of nobodies pointing everyone to a great big somebody. Paul wanted to be known as a follower of Jesus, not as the great Paul. His life was so radically transformed that his cares and his desires and his wishes became secondary because his job was to love and care and take the gospel to people in need. His comfort, his life, his freedom were all secondary to his calling. I read a story this week about a pastor it's on staff at New Spring Church over in the Carolinas. 
His own staff was part of the church when one day he got news that his wife and young child were involved in a terrible accident. An EMT had been working a 24-hour shift, shouldn't have been driving, fell asleep at the wheel, hit them head on. The wife and the child were killed. The guy driving was completely irresponsible. By all rights, he should have gone to jail and he should have paid the price for his crimes. The day of the guy's sentencing, they had a unique witness for clemency for him. It was the pastor whose wife and child had been killed. And he stood there and he pleaded for them not to give him harsh time and he pleaded for a lenient sentence, even asking them to release him under parole. pastor said that began a friendship that has lasted now about 10 years. They meet every week or every other week At the longest, this EMT is now a part of their family events and he has brought them into their family. Even for us as believers, we hear that and go, I don't know about that. The story was told on the Today Show because just like us, they were like, how can that be? And they asked him, why in the world would you do this for this man? He said, after he wronged us, I realized that the call of Jesus on my life was important to bring him to a place where he understood the forgiveness of Jesus more than the condemnation of man. His life was so transformed because he had been set apart for a mission by Jesus that it changed how he dealt with people. Let me ask you a question. How much does it take in your life for your button to get pushed to the point where your comfort or your desire or your wish or your want takes over control of the way you handle a situation? With your kids, with your spouse, at work, with a coworker, with people in general, online, on social media? How often is our attitude, we need people to understand the greatness and the goodness of God, and I want to be known for that instead of let me make my point or let me get what I need or deserve. Paul says, the one thing I want you to know about me is not what I used to be. It's not of how great I was in the schools growing up. What I want you to know about me is that right now I'm here because of Jesus I live for Jesus, and I have been set apart to do the work of Jesus. And that's all that matters. That's the man. Guess what? We've made it through one verse of the book of Romans. (laughs) Only got a couple hundred more to go, all right? 432 left. We can do that quickly, right? Here's the second part. It's not just the man, it's the message. What is the message? Simply, it is the gospel. Why was Paul willing to go around the world to places he was not welcome, to people that did not want him to be there? Why was he there? It's because there was this good news. He was willing to endure unspeakable hardships. He was willing to go to places that 
would not have been friendly at all and imprisoned him for his faith. He was willing to risk his own life because of the good news of Jesus Christ. And Paul begins to explain this in verse 2, and I'll just tell you that the gospel and an understanding of it is what is the theme of this entire book. So we're not going to cover it all today, but give you some things that he begins to share with them in order to draw them into understanding what he's doing. First of all, he says this is good news. It is gospel. It is right because it was promised and fulfilled. There in verse 2, if you've got your Bibles open, he says, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Paul's most compelling evidence that this was not just another religion, but that this was the truth of God, that it was not just some private thing for him, that it was the truth for the world, is that it was prophesied for years before and fulfilled in a way that only God could do it. Even before he talks about the resurrection, even before he talks about grace, he brings up that it was promised beforehand and that it was necessary in order for us to understand that it had been fulfilled. I think back to the road to Emmaus after the resurrection when they're walking along and these two guys are walking. They're talking about the events of the day. And you remember Jesus shows up, but he's incognito. They don't know it's Jesus. And they begin to share all these things. And then it says that he just begins to walk them through starting at the very beginning until that moment how God had worked the promises that he put in the Old Testament out through the life of Jesus. Showing, for example, in Genesis that the He was the Word creating the heavens. And in Exodus, He was the Passover Lamb. In Leviticus, He was the holy place where we could meet with God. In Numbers, He was our ever-present guide, our pillar in a cloud. And from Deuteronomy, He was the prophet coming who would be greater than Moses. That's just the first five books. You could go through the rest of those Old Testament books. In Isaiah, He is wonderful counselor, everlasting God. Prince of Peace, Almighty Father. And Hosea, he is the one that pursues us even when we run away from him. And Jonah, he is the one that takes good news to the entire world, not just one group of people. And Micah, he is the everlasting ruler born to us in Bethlehem. And Zechariah, the king who comes into Jerusalem riding a donkey, betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, the son who was pierced whom one day every son would behold. There are 300 other specific prophecies that tell us the time, place, character, and ministry of the Messiah. I remember reading Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ. I've used this illustration before, but I remember him saying that for Jesus to fulfill every prophecy written about him perfectly like he did, with the chance of that on its own just happening without God doing it is the same chance as covering the entire state of Texas with quarters, marking one, having them stacked like person high all across the state of Texas, marking one and telling someone to go pick one quarter out of the stack and picking the right one. It's not by chance. The promises were fulfilled. 
But not just that. He tells us in verse 4, it was appointed the power by the resurrection of the dead. That was the other piece of the evidence. Those people had seen Him raised. They had heard of Him raised. People were witnesses to Him being raised. We don't know how the church at Rome started, but a lot of people think that it was started by Jews that were leaving Jerusalem after uh, Pentecost. When they had been there, from most Jews would go to go on Passover and stay till Pentecost, and that was the ending. They would return home. And so many of them had come from Rome to Jerusalem, had been there for Passover, had celebrated that, had heard about Jesus, had heard the reports of his resurrection, and then they're at Pentecost where they come to believe in Jesus and his resurrection, and they go back to Rome. And he says to them, you have people basically among you that are witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. And that sealed him as God. And because of him, prophesied, fulfilled, rose from the dead, verse 5 tells us, and we received grace. Grace upon grace upon grace. Um, This week we were talking, a couple of weeks from now on Sunday night, we're going to have a hymn sing with one of the Blackwood brothers, Terry Blackwood from the Imperials and sang with Elvis and has sang with the Gaithers. and, And part of that is coming up with, we're asking some of you and you can let Deborah know in the office, or Mike Allen, I know, is collecting them some favorite hymns, and we're going to give those to Terry so that he will be willing to sing some of those hymns. And we were talking in the office about favorite hymns, and I could not remember the name of my favorite hymn. I just knew it was next to Amazing Grace in the hymn book. Do you all have any hymns like that? Anybody, like three of you are looking at me. Anybody know? Like you, I can't remember the name exactly, but I know where it is. It's right here. And it was the one that... When you sang it, uh, we, had, we had people in our church um, that my superintendent of schools was a guy named Sam Reed. And Sam Reed had this deep bass voice. And you know in the hymnal, I'm going to talk to hymnal people for a minute, all right? You know in the hymnal how you've got those lines that come underneath and are echo parts or sing something different? You know, just nod at me, you know what I'm saying? Like every time we had one of those, I loved it because Sam Reed, you could hear him through the whole church singing that echo part. And the song that came to me was Wonderful, the Matchless Grace of Jesus, Deeper than the Highest Road. That, you know what I'm talking about? Silent Sea, Higher than the Mountain, Stronger than. For even me, even me. Right? As close as you're going to get to me singing, right there, right? And here's the thing when I was a kid, I loved it because of that. Like, it's, I don't know if you know that hymn, like, it starts kind of slow. And then it like kicks it in there. I love that hymn. I went back and read it the other day because I was trying to figure it out. And I pulled out a Baptist hymnal and I went to Amazing Grace and it was the page before, just like I remember. And the words are awesome. For even me. Matchless grace of Jesus. Man, right? Without grace, we got nothing. Without his wonderful gift that we don't deserve, we have nothing. Anytime you try to describe it through human terms, it seems flimsy and, and just wrong. And I read something this week that said, imagine, if you will, that um, you um, 
walked in. We've all had this dream, right? You walk into a class and you're supposed to take a test on a subject and you haven't prepared at all and they hand it out and it's all essay and you're just sweating. Imagine that happened in real life and the best student in the class walked up and as you're turning your papers in, he wrote his name on your paper and your name on his and turned them in. That sounds cool, but what Jesus did was much greater than that. He took my eternal punishment and bore the cross and the sin that I have committed on himself. By his stripes, I was healed. And Paul says, this gospel is not about what we do or how we earn it or any of that. It is simply because of grace. And then he tells us why he does it. The reason for the mission. And this is the calling on our lives just like his. Because here's what you don't, don't, may not realize. We may not be apostle with a capital A, like one of the original 12. But we are called out by God for his purposes. We are saved by Jesus. We should be devoted to Jesus and we are called by Jesus. And we are called to proclaim the gospel that had been prophesied and fulfilled. The gospel that was confirmed by the resurrection and the gospel that was given to us by grace. And as a result, it should lead, as he talks about in the end part of this opening chapter, to unashamed proclamation. Verse 16, one of those famous verses in the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. He says, I can't wait to get to Rome. I can't wait to get there. Paul would get there. We know he would get there. And he says, I can't wait to see you because when I get there, I'm going to tell you about the gospel because I am unashamed. I am not ashamed of the gospel in any way. That he is anticipating difficulty. He is anticipating people telling him not to talk. He is anticipating that people would not be wanting to hear the gospel. And he says, I don't care. I am unashamed. Tim Keller, who recently passed away, said that in our day and time, there are some reasons that we might be tempted to be ashamed. He said, first of all, it's because we're such spiritual failures that we understand that this free gift of grace was given to us, but that we have done nothing to deserve it, and we feel inadequate to be able to share. Also, we might be uh, ashamed because that we're so wicked that only death of Jesus could save us. Sometimes we're ashamed because we're afraid of what other people will think. Paul would say, I know it may offend and I know it may cast people away from me, but I don't care because it is the only means of salvation and I will declare it unashamedly. Our mission is unashamed proclamation, but not just unashamed. Verse 15 uses a different word. It is also eager proclamation. I am eager to preach the gospel. I am ready He basically says, why would I not be? If the gospel is as great as I have just described it, why would I not want people to know? Why would I not want to tell people? I want an eagerness to be able to share the gospel. I want an eagerness to be able to tell about the power of God in my life. I want an eagerness to be able to go forth. Spurgeon said, 
That if my hearers are not converted, I have wasted my time. I have lost the exercise of brain and heart. I feel as if I have lost my hope and lost my life unless I find for my Lord some of his blood-bought ones. I would sooner bring one sinner to Jesus Christ than unpack all the divine mysteries in the Word. We are eager to see people come to Christ. We are eager to see people accept Jesus. We are eager to see people pass through those baptismal waters. And that eagerness in our life leads to us being willing to say it when we know it won't be popular and people might not accept it. Paul says that he is unashamed and eager, but even a step before that in verse 14 he says he is obligated. The word he uses here means debtor. That he is in debt. He is saying that I have an obligation to share this because of all that Christ has done for me. Paul's introduction to the Roman church, which we'll get into a little bit more in the weeks ahead about why he's writing to them and what the reason is and what the difficulties were there. But his first introduction to this church, the thing he wants them to know about him, is that everything that is good in his life is from Jesus, and that the gospel is the center of what we talk about, and that it is the thing that drives our mission. Man, I can't think of a better way to describe what a person of God ought to look like and what a church following God ought to look like. A church full of people saved by Jesus called out by Jesus, devoted to Jesus, passionately devoted even. Proclaiming the gospel that has been proclaimed from the beginning, prophesied and fulfilled, confirmed by the resurrection that is full of grace. And as people, we are unashamedly, eagerly, under obligation, sharing the gospel with those around us. So my question to you today is, is that the way your life will be described? And if not, what does it take for you to care about that being the reputation of your life? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for today and for this opportunity and for this chance to to be reminded again of how much you've done for us and that our lives should revolve around the time the reality of who you are with us. And so, Lord, I pray that in these moments you would speak to our hearts and our wills and our minds and our souls and remind us of those areas where we need to turn over to you, to release to you, and the people in our lives that we need to share the truth of your grace with. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.